First Kings chapter 13 this evening, a very exciting chapter. I, I hope we get the whole thing. The title, is, which is supposed to be informative, is City of Defects. This city is Bethel, and we'll try to get right to it because we have a defective king, a defective man of God, and a defective prophet. And that merits quite a a bit of consideration. So looking at verse 1, And behold, the man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of Yahweh, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Well, Bethel needed a man of God, so God imported one. But we're going to find there's a prophet that lives in Bethel, and God bypasses him. And he has, so God has to import a man of God. There was no one to be found that he could use, evidently. Again, the local prophet had been compromised, and that comes out in the story. For those of you familiar with it already, you, you know what's going to happen. Some cities have a multitude of churches, but they're not able to deliver God's word. Because they too are compromised, and this this is uh, this lesson is right here. Walk up to somebody that's a Christian and say, "Are you familiar with First Kings chapter thirteen? I think that many Christians would not be familiar with this chapter. Maybe if you started explaining it, they would. Oh yeah, yeah, I know that story. But how many do not? It was at Bethel that Jacob had a life-changing experience with God even though for Jacob it was gradual, but it was foundational. He never forgot it. Genesis chapter 16, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep. This is when the Lord visited him in the dream. And said, Surely Yahweh is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. Proper use of the word awesome, incidentally. Now what's replaced awesome is literally It literally has replaced it, and it's awesome that it, anyway. He continues, this is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And he called the name of the place Bethel, house of God. That's what Bethel means. I think it's very exciting that the house of God, he has this this reverence, this fear. Not terror, but reverence. We shouldn't lose any of that. Another imported prophet about 150 years later will taunt the apostate Jews using Bethel to do it. Amos the prophet, he also was from Judah in Tekoa, the particular village. He says, come to Bethel and transgress. Imagine saying, come on down to church and sin with us as we pray towards statues and, and, and pray to, to human beings and things like that. God's identity and God's will, they're stressed in this chapter. This is a big chapter. I don't mean lengthwise. I mean importance. The covenant name of Yahweh. Nineteen times do we read of his covenant name. And... Of him, of the word of Yahweh, twelve times. This this is emphatic for a reason. Jeroboam, it says here in verse one, stood by the altar to burn incense. Well, he made his choice that he wanted God his way, sort of the Burger King God. You can have it your way. It used to be their slogan, right? When you invent your own religion, you do whatever you want to do. And that's what he's doing. And he's going to appoint the priest. He's going to appoint the, the, the rules. And he's just uh, making the altar. There's not supposed to be an altar in Bethel or anywhere else in Israel except Jerusalem. Also, the kings were forbidden to be priest, to offer up this incense. King Uzziah will suffer leprosy trying many years later. And he was a good king. Verse 2, then he cried out against the altar by the word of Yahweh, and said, O altar, altar. Thus says Yahweh, Behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and you shall shall sacrifice the priest 
of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. He cried out against the altar by the word of God. This is the prophet that's sent from, from Judah. He's ignoring the human blasphemers. Why would he cry out to an inanimate object? Why not the people that are standing there? Well, the altar has a better chance of listening. It's, 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 an, it's, it's <clears throat> supposed to insult them. If you were standing there and say, excuse me, are you talking to me? Or I'm talking to the altar. What's the point of talking to you? You're not going to listen. I'm not sent here only for you, but in demonstration that God has sent you an opportunity to repent. And so he singles out the altar, not Jeroboam, the king, and said, O altar, O altar, thus says the Lord, Yahweh. The double pronunciation of the altar, unmistakable, emphatic, and passionate demonstrates. It's, it's an appropriate touch on the part of the prophet vocalizing what was in God's heart. The shock, the dismay, the disappointment. It is also, of course, a, a rebuke towards this altar and the one that is further to the north in the tribe of Dan, both of them instituted by this King Jeroboam. The whole system of false worship in northern Israel is being rebuked. This is the ground zero for that rebuke. He says, Behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David. <clears throat> King Josiah will be born 300 years from now. Not from now. <laughs> from the time here that this prophecy was made. This is one of the most remarkable, predictive prophecies in all the Bible. He's named. He is a righteous king and a great reformer. There are those that try to somehow undo this. They don't. They cannot. Well, he didn't mean Josiah. Well, who did he mean? Wilt Chamberlain? I mean, he's a basketball player, long gone. But anyway, God would raise up a Judean king to obliterate and dishonor this piece of junk altar that's in the promised land in the northern kingdom that was supposed to, was given a chance by God to... Do it the right way, since Rehoboam and Solomon had done it the wrong way. Josiah will be king for 31 years. He will leave, five, uh, he will leave one of the five great revivals of, of the Jewish kings, all of them Judean. Not recorded in kings, but recorded in chronicles. And he will die prematurely on the battlefield. Even as, as great a king as he was, he, he overstepped. He went where he should not have gone. And Jeremiah's heart will be broken over that, as will many of the righteous. It continues here in verse 2. And on you he shall sacrifice the priest of the high places. Josiah would come along 300 years later and slaughter the illegitimate priests on this very altar. Again, one of the most remarkable prophecies in Scripture. It's not the only one like this. Cyrus the king is another one. We find that in Isaiah 45. But but uh, this is just incredible. And he's predicting also the actions of this king. Not just saying, hey, somebody named Josiah is going to be born. He says, Josiah is going to be born. He's going to be a king. He's going to deal with this altar. And you can, that's not a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, the, you just don't have the ability to, to get all those ducks in a row. And he fulfills it to the letter so that we read in 2 Kings chapter 23, as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs that were there on the mountain and he set, sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of Yahweh, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. Now, this is 300 years later that the historian is talking about, looking back, Josiah is looking back 300 years and said, the man of God called this moment and I'm now fulfilling it. And then he, it says, he executed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned men's bones on them and he returned to Jerusalem. Pretty thorough. No nonsense. He was purging the land as best he could of the devil's influence in religion, which would then influence morality. 
He says those who burn incense on you. This non-Levitical priest, of course, appointed by Jeroboam. The men's bones shall be burned on you. Disrespect to the, to the dead idolaters. Well, they offended God. In Leviticus 26, God says, this is what's going to happen if you, if you don't listen to me. Here's one part, portion from Leviticus 26. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols. And my soul shall abhor you. Pretty serious stuff. I'm going to hate you for this. Because they're bringing in the child sacrifices. I mean, these people were, they were evil, what they were doing because of their religion. This is going on. India is having a big problem with this. This revival of Hinduism in India. Shutting down orphanages so that they can have a resort for cows. Seriously. I, I, I mean, sacred cows. You know, they can go there and they can die peace. Well, what about the humans? Psh, they don't count. Only Satan can engineer such nonsense as that. We have a lot more just to come in these first nine verses. But here's one of the, the great differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The, the New Testament life is, is more difficult. That's why legalists like to run to the Old Testament and sort of ignore the New Testament because they think they can get away with it, with this facade. Acts chapter 9. Instead of God saying to Paul, I want you to go kill all those who worship at the temple of Diana in Ephesus, God says for I, to Ananias about Paul, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Acts 14.22, Paul now speaking to the believers, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. As opposed to, again, Go burn them on their altars. The big difference between the New Testament, turning the other cheek in grace with grace and love, and the directives of the New Testament, uh, Old Testament, which was to preserve a people for Messiah to come according to the prophecies, so that we would have a more sure word of prophecy. So when you get in front of someone, you say, "Listen, nobody's got these prophecies but us." We can say that because of how God arranged the Old Testament. And at, for, you know, to, to reason with people, which those who uh, just, there are people that just don't care about reason. Jeroboam is one of them. For example, an evolutionist. You could just say, open the window, look outside, and you tell me, can you make this stuff up? Can you just make up trees, a different variety of trees, grass growing, different varieties of birds? You have scavengers, you have predators, you have... Uh, you vegetarian, <laughs> vegetarian birds. I mean, you just have this whole cycle, and you're just saying that that you just somebody just made this up. Chance made it up. It's irrational. This is the devil's dirt, and we are supposed to be very serious about this. That's why Paul says we suffer doing the work, trying to to preach the gospel to people who don't want to hear it. And yet, out of that group of people who don't want to hear it, get, they get saved. Many of them. Or else we wouldn't be here this evening. In verse 3, And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which, the, which Yahweh has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. <clears throat> of course, they're going to repair this. <laughs> that will give Josiah uh, the altar he needs to fulfill the prophecy. But he's saying, just in case you don't believe me, because you're not going to be here. Nobody knows how long it is in this group, the prophet. God has not disclosed how long it would take before Josiah would come along. We know it's 300 years because we have the, the scripture. But they didn't know. He could have felt he's coming tomorrow. Well, the prophet is saying, just so you'll know that my talk is not cheap because it is God's message to you, I'm going to back it up. And by verse 5, we find that it comes, it happens, the altar splits, just like he said. Which you would think Jeroboam would say, well, that's not a coincidence. But he does not. As, again, the, the evolutionists or other people who believe in these uh, just things, these theories, these ideas that are uh, just flawed through and through, you'd think that they would, the facts would mean something to them. The facts didn't mean anything to Jeroboam, didn't mean anything to Judas Iscariot. Well... 
the priests, speaking of these ashes, were to pour, the legitimate priests in Jerusalem were to take the ashes from the burnt offerings to a clean place and dispose of them there. Here, the ashes remain because the place is corrupted, it's defiled, it's contaminated, and it speaks of that. The ashes are the evidence of something that has been spent. And in the case of proper religion before Yahweh, it was dealing with sin. The sin had been dealt with, and what was left was the ashes, and God had them properly uh, cast away. I'll come back to that, hopefully. Verse 4, So it came to pass, when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, who cried out against the altar in Bethel, that he stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Arrest him. Then his hand, which he stretched out toward him, withered, so that he could not pull it back to himself. So he looks like a Venus de Milo with arms. <laughs> you know the statue. <laughs> she doesn't have any arms, so how do you know what she was doing with him, right? All right, anyway. Uh, he, he's stuck. He, he's just there like a garden ornament. And uh, he, as soon as he recognizes that it's a prophet, what does he want to do? He wants to censor him. We see this today. Idolaters are violently intolerated, intolerant of rebuke. And our message of truth is offensive, and no matter how we deliver it. We can do it, you know, as the prophet... Um, Amos did? Sure. Come on down and sin and sarcasm, or we can be, be very gently and say, listen, the Lord loves you. It's the, uh, the goodness of God leads to repentance. They have a response for that. We just have to deliver it as told, saying, arrest him. Judicial censorship. This is the law of the king, which is the law of the land. And uh, guilty people, therefore, censorship of truth, if it goes against with their lifestyle, well, God paralyzes the prosecutor's hand, verse 5. The altar also was split apart, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of Yahweh. <clears throat> now, we, I mentioned we're going to come across 12 times that uh, this the man of God, the, well, the word of God, and, and we're going to constantly hear the man of God referring to this prophet. Uh, let's not forget that when when things get pretty um, hot around him from uh, the judgment. Anyway, this authenticates his message, that indeed it came from God. Ezekiel said it this way. Now, Ezekiel comes, oh, 400 years later almost, and he's, he, he says to the people he's ministering to, As for them, whether they hear or whether they refuse... For they are a rebellious house, yet they will know that a prophet has been among them. I, I just love that. God says to the prophet, look, don't worry about what they're going to do with the message. You deliver the message. What they do it, with it, that's between them and me. But they're going to know a man of God was there. Uh, I, I, I just love that. Uh, anyway, and the ashes poured out from the altar, as he said. Leaving no room for doubt, you would think. Sin makes a person stupid. It makes a, it, sin makes us dumb. We look for ways to justify the sin. And, and as Christians, you got to watch it too, because you know we're, we're quick to, to also do this to fall in nature thing. Anyway, to dispose of the ruin, the contamination of the sin depicted in the ashes. Uh, this was the job of the Levites. And uh, here again, uh, with them not being removed, the idea is your sin is still there. But when God's people were to remove this ashes, it was Isaiah thirty-eight seventeen. 17. Uh, would be a fitting verse. Speaking to God, he says, You have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. They're ashes and you've taken them out of the city. This is actually Hezekiah. Uh, speaking, Isaiah records it, and he, it's when God spared, spared his life, and he just pours out in his gratitude, thank you, Lord, and Hezekiah was one of the great kings uh, of, of the Hebrew kings. Anyway, their contamination, their defilement is retained in the ashes spilling out on their altar, this part of the imagery there, verse 6. Then the king answered and said to the man of God, 
Please entreat the favor of Yahweh your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated Yahweh, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as before. Though the king wanted his arm back, but God wanted the king back because Jeroboam was a good king, a good man, when he was serving in Jerusalem. That's why the prophet Ahijah was sent to him. But he became an apostate, and we're going to hit that pretty hard in a minute. Uh, the, the treatment of apostates versus unbelievers. There, there is a difference. We, should, we don't have the same treatment for them, for the two. Apostates get severe treatment, uh, and for a good reason. They're super dangerous, they are, when it comes to souls, snatching souls. Anyway, here's his opportunity for repentance, but his heart was set on sin. The prophet did not smite the king. God, again, intervened, interfered. God struck him. But the prophet doesn't ask God to, to withdraw the, 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 the strike, the smite. He asks the prophet to intercede on his behalf, which the prophet does. And we read, so the man of God entreated Yahweh, and the king's hand was restored to him, and he became as before. So the prophet's office is over the king when the prophet is on assignment. When the prophet is on assignment, he is higher than anybody in the land. After his assignment, though, he goes back to being one of the subjects to the king. There are three miracles in just these few minutes of time, and yet no repentance. The paralyzed arm, the split altar, and then the restored arm. You would think that the king would say, this is spooky. Facts don't matter to people who just love their sin and are determined not to submit to God. That's why they'll, anyway, verse 7. Then the king said to the man of God, come home with me and refresh yourself and I will give you a reward. <laughs> From arrest him to invite him. <clears throat> he should have said, Lord, forgive me a sinner. He doesn't get there. So what we have here is Satan transforming himself in front of a prophet from lion into a fox, from a lion into a fox. Balaam would have made an appointment to come back in a week. <laughs> said, I can't come right now. I was told to go back to you, but I'll be back in a week. You have the loot ready. And, of course, we know the story of Balaam the prophet. Anyway, offering gifts to prophets was not unheard of in, in this, amongst these ancient people, even the Jews. We see it in the book of Samuel, and we see it in the book of Kings. Uh, Nahum, you know, he offering gifts to Elijah, and Elijah said, no, thank you. And Gehazi, <laughs> Gehazi said, oh, by the way. Uh, and, and of course, he was smitten with leprosy, too. Also not uncommon was the prophets refusing the gifts. Abraham told the king of Sodom and Gomorrah, you keep your gifts because you won't say, Abraham, I made Abraham. Not a thread or a sandal strap do I want from you. I mean, it was scathing. And the king, of course, is the character that he is, he probably, you know, as those, those type of people are, <laughs> you can insult them with the truth and it just bounces off of them. Try insulting a journalist. Say, ooh, why would anybody want to talk to you? They, just go look for somebody else. They won't say, you know what, you're right. We, we just go and make money off of other people's tragedies and horror, and it's wrong. Now, they won't do that. Uh, if you want to get nauseous, go to the museum. I don't know if it's still there, but uh, anyway, any chance I can get to rebuke that nasty center. It's a museum that the news media has in Washington, D.C. that shows all of their, you know, look at all the stories we reported on. Somebody else's sorrow, but we made a lot of money from it. You have no right to suffer privately with those guys. Anyway, Elijah, as I mentioned, Daniel, Daniel tell, told Bel Belshazzar, keep your gifts for yourself or give it to somebody else. I don't want it. Here's what the handwriting means. You're done. And, and that's, so the prophets were offered gifts. That wasn't uncommon, but they were also uh, able to refuse them from people who fraternize with the enemy. Now, verse 8. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread nor drink water in this place. And your chickens are ugly. <laughs> He's very clear. 
that you know he's got his orders. He's he's here to deliver his message and get out of the, out of there. He is not to have fellowship with flagrant sinners, and where sin was rampant, and the king had authority and ability to stop it, and he did not. This is where it gets good for us. Matthew chapter 5, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. I mean, you know, anyway, Proverbs 25, 26, a righteous man who falters before the wicked is like a murky spring and a polluted well. The message is murky. You know, it's not clear now. That's why he's going to be punished for his disobedience. And so he says, if you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you. This is an idiom for no way. It shows up, uh, Balaam, it's identical to Balaam using the same thing to Balak. There's no way I can take that king. But again, Balak says, I'll come back later. And he becomes a full-blown apostate. He was never a prophet of the Hebrews, but he was a prophet. Uh, God spoke to him. God even spoke to him through a donkey. That's pretty impressive stuff. No, who, you, don't, you won't meet anybody like that. Anyway, uh, he says, nor will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. <laughs> he was not to fraternize with the enemies of God. He was not to socialize with apostates. That's the big difference. Is the person, one person is an unbeliever, and we, we want to reach them. We can be patient with them. But the apostate is Je- or the Jehovah Witness or the Mormon that's coming through your neighborhood is bringing the devil's Bible and saying it's God's Bible. And to invite them in and be chummy with them is a violation. And I'll, I'll get to some New Testament verses in case, you know, so because some people think that they're, you know, they're imba- uh, not ambassadors, but diplomats. The ambassador pretty much says, this is it. The diplomat's trying to find a way. And spiritually speaking, it, diplomacy like that does not work. Uh, Jesus would not be seen yucking it up with Herod, the killer of John the baptizer. Again, the only man in the Bible Jesus totally ignored. So, verse 9, For so it was commanded by the word of Yahweh, saying, You shall not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return the same way you came. You ever see someone chummy with somebody who is uh, making havoc of another person's life? Well, how would you feel, you know, if, if you, you saw another Christian brother and he's just having a good old time with somebody who's a wife beater or a child abuser? Would you, would you applaud that? Paul says, Has, have no fellowship with the works of darkness, but rather expose them. And there are people who in, in, in Christ that uh, they're just spiritually naive, but you can't tell them they're naive because they don't believe they are. They believe they have this great discernment and they're peacemakers, but that's fine to a point. Where is that point? Second John, chapter, uh, Second John, verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. That's pretty heavy stuff. John is saying, you better make a distinction. There are some people that are so evil in their present state that you cannot have anything to do with them. I've seen it over the years as a pastor, and there are just, you know, uh, cases where if I saw the, the person that was making victims, I wouldn't say hello to them if I passed by them. I wouldn't speak to them. I'd tell them, get away from me if they, if they came near me. I would not treat them with kindness. I would not sin. But I let them know a prophet's been amongst them and their wicked behavior will not be tolerated. This lack of discernment is utter folly based on spiritual short-sightedness. Not sure of what your identity is. There is a time we Christians are to bear the rod of rebuke against the, the flagrant sinner. Could you imagine, you know, uh, someone saying, you know, my, my, my husband's beating, been beating me up. Okay, you know what? I'll just take him out to coffee tomorrow. 
I might say, I'll take him out. I just won't say where. Revelation 18 is another example in Scripture of, of, of be separate, come out, lest you share in their judgments. So, what about the victim? What about the victim driving along and seeing you on the side, talking to somebody who's been abusing them and just giggling and ah, shaking hands, I'll see you later. You know, you just got to leave the door open because God might want to... Re- no! You're not bigger than God. Cut it out. Clowning around with Satan is forbidden. And um, that's a, pretty much hit that as hard as I should hit it. I asked, I said, Lord, can I be just kind when I do this? I don't know. I, did he answer? <laughs> I, I want to be firm. I don't want to leave any room for, yeah, but I'm the exception. No, you're not the exception on this one. Someone out there preaching evil against Christ. Someone, uh, I remember years ago, there was this welder uh, on a job, and my brother John Connors and I, we were working the same job, and the, 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 the welder was fine with me, but he was into sorcery. And he was, anyway. And John, John tries to talk to him, and we left the shanty, and John said, that guy is satanic. He is satanic. <laughs> he was convinced and I, I, I didn't disagree either. I wasn't as, you know, matured in Christ yet. And he, the guy was always nice to me. But um, I, I agree. Uh, you know, you just come across some people. They're just out there doing the devil's work, man. Anyhow, n- nor return by the same way you came. Disfellowship by God of the land. God says, I don't want you to have a second look at this place. I don't want you familiar with this place. I want you out of there. Their sins have separated me from them. And I want you to have nothing to do with them. Okay, well, that's going to be pretty clear. And that sets us up for what's coming. We're not there yet. We will be. In verse 10, so he went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. The alternate route has booby traps. Don't be naive. Maybe I should have worked that into the title. You take the alternate route. Don't think Satan doesn't follow you. He's following this man. He has a servant ready to go. God does not want this man tricked or pressured away from the word and the clear direction he received. And because he is going to go away from that clear directive, he's going to pay with his life. Verse 11. Now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel. And his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words which he had spoken to the king. So between these two characters now which come to the front of the story, we have the prophet and the man of God. And that's how they're addressed. And that's very interesting. You have the churchgoer and you have the Christian. Uh, a person can go to church for years and not be a Christian and go the whole lifetime. Uh, there are whole churches out there, as I mentioned at the, at the beginning. They, they've compromised. They, they, they don't give God's word, so God doesn't speak to them. But they still go ahead saying, hey, we're, we're a church, just like this old man was saying, hey, I'm still a prophet. Well, if you are, why aren't you at the altar rebuking Jeroboam? Why are your sons over there? Because they're the ones that bring the story to him. He says, now the old prophet dwelt in Bethel, the house of God, and uh, could not be sent to Jeroboam. I I would be, I mean, how would you feel if you were passed over for an assignment in your city? I would be, you know, I've told you, you know, times in early on, we figured, you know what, maybe maybe I'll just not try to dock the church here. Just getting slammed. May I just go away and find a church and be a good usher? And the thought hit me, and I think it was from God. Well, fine, I'll get somebody else. Oh, no. Oh, no, no. No, you won't. No. You will not get somebody else, Lord. So help me you. <laughs> Just the thought. I mean, we, again, if, if, I, if you are a, um, <clears throat> um, I don't know, an auto mechanic, and... You hear, you hear about somebody being a very good pastor, you probably say, man, I, I, right on. 
And then that same person says, well, let me tell you about this wonderful auto mechanic. And it's not you he's talking about. <laughs> the antenna goes up. How come I'm not the best one? I'm not promoting this. I'm not saying I do it, but I know you all do it. So here we have it here. If I were this prophet, I think I'd be pretty disturbed that God had to import a messenger in my theater of operation. And this is part of the story. Oh, imagine in the workplace, you're a Christian, and all of a sudden a new guy shows up who's a Christian, and he's starting to lead people to Christ, and you haven't been saying anything for years. Man, that would be... How would you... I would adjust by this. I said, look, I, I, I'm, look, I just want to join sides with you now. Uh, maybe the Lord will, will cut me some slack on this one. Anyway, uh, he lacked integrity. That's what we're going to find out, and that's one of the reasons why he's bypassed. We've already seen that his kids are around the false altar, and they're probably young men. And so he's not living like the man of God. So he could not be assigned to the same uh, role as the man of God was assigned. For the same reason that God would raise up Josiah King in Judah to come up north to Bethel to deal with their idols. He he couldn't find a king in the northern kingdom. None of the kings of the north were ever good. They were all bad. Some worse than others, but they were all bad. Ezekiel again, chapter 22. So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Well, his inaction disqualified him also. Um, Continuing in verse 11. And his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. Uh, how would you feel if, if you know, someone, your, son, your sons came and told you that there was somebody doing your job? They also told their father the words which he had spoken to the king. Uh, that means the instructions about, I'm not going to stay here, I've got to get out. You would think that this prophet would honor that. He does not. He brings about the death of this man. I don't like this old prophet at this point in the story. I never get keen on him. But he does seem to show uh, like the flame is ignited again. We'll we'll, we'll get to that eventually. Uh, Verse 12, And their father said to them, Which way did he go? For his sons had seen which way the man of God went who came from Judah, and that is stressed, that he's, came, he's imported. Uh, why is he interested? He's a spiritual colleague. Is it envy? Uh, is it that um, he had hope that maybe this man could reignite the flame that he lost? He, he's going to go after the man of God. He becomes the temptation on the alternate route. Verse 13 and then he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he rode on it, verse 14, and went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. Then he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Well, this man of God, a little naive, and it's going to, again, cost him. We don't, we don't have the right. I mean, we goof. We all goof. How did I miss that? But we, we should be watching. I had a uh, platoon sergeant who spent serious time in Vietnam, and he would boast, I've been on 78 point missions. <laughs> he survived. <laughs> now he's home. He's safe. He's eating ham and eggs again uh, out of a frying pan and not a can. And, and he's, he's, you know, <laughs> I didn't like him then, but looking back, I, I, I'm older and I appreciate what was happening. He was like, I survived. All of the walking point means you're the first guy. You're the one that steps on the, on the landmine first. You're the one that gets shot in the ambush first. And, and to survive point is in a hostile environment like that is, is noble. So I don't know why that comes up in the story. I, um, Except that he walked like Weeble Wobble. <laughs> and that was his nickname. But wouldn't tell him to his face. Anyway, uh, verse 15. Then he said, come home with me and eat bread. 
why 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 should he take him seriously well we better take the story seriously he's thinking of himself he knows that he, he the, the sons have said we heard what he said to the king and he said amongst other things to the king that he's not to stay here he's to go home a different route they tell that to their father he takes this information he confronts the man of God as a prophet. He throws those credentials. I, too, am a prophet. And uh, the man of God falls for that line. Uh, if someone were to come up to me and say, I, I'm a pastor, I wouldn't say, okay, so we're buddies. It would be like, I don't know, what do you believe? <laughs> Just, you know, what are, you, what are your thoughts on the Trinity? What do you think about the, the Word of God being the Word of God? There would be a lot of questions uh, that would have to take place before we could even smile at each other. Well, he might be doing the smiling, but I'll be doing the watching. Anyway, verse 16, and he said, I cannot return with you or go in with you, neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. Verse 17, for I have been told by the word of Yahweh, you shall not eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by going the way you came. Okay, so now he gets it right out, straight out. He's told that the man of God clearly understands his instructions. And but he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna be distracted to the point where he takes this detour. And um, the mission forbade social visits with anyone. God didn't say, and leave, don't stay and eat. Except the prophet comes to you. There was no footnote added to the commandment. He wasn't to mingle with the people of the land. Verse 18. He said to him, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of Yahweh saying, Bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. He was lying to him. Man. I mean, so, again, parentheses do not mean unimportant information. Parentheses mean this is important. And there we have it. He's lying. The man of God does not know it yet. Where's the discernment? He's a bit naive with this whole thing. All he had to do is say, nope, sorry, you're not God. If God tells me, I'll listen to you. But he's pressured by this, or he may be tired, evidently. He had a donkey, but he's tired, and he's sitting by the oak. That's not an excuse. Well, the devil came with the temptation when he was tired. And the angel spoke to me by the word of Yahweh. Again, lying about God and about God's word to a man of God. This persistent type who refuses to take no for an answer needs to be shut down. At some point in the conversation, we all, it's okay to say, listen, this doesn't work for me. No. Uh, it's the, one of the hardest words for a human being to have to deal with is when someone tells them no. Uh, we, you, and that if, if it comes, um, who would you rather tell no to, God or the persistent person? And in ministry, for me, I know you, many times when God's telling me to do something, I'm not even interested in protests or anything. I, this is what I'm supposed to do. But then there, most of the time it's not that way. I'm interested in what confidants have to say and contribute but there are those times where, no, I know what I'm supposed to do here. So yeah, here he is. Um, nothing to like about this old prophet of Bethel at this point. Paul said it this way to a whole slew of churches, to, to churches in Galatia. Remember, the Galatian church was not one church like Corinth. It was a region of churches. And he writes to them. And he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, that we have preached to you, let him be accursed, anathema. That's pretty heavy stuff. Let him go to hell then. That's, that's the, the, the bottom line with that. And, and he says it twice, Paul does. In case you misunderstood what I said, in the same chapter, he says it again. Well, here in verse 18, saying, Bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. And he was lying. God did not tell him to, to, to do any of this. Um, uh, it's okay to offend people if they get offended by, by what you know, you, you're telling them. If it's an honest, no, I don't want to do that. 
I, I don't have to do these things. And, and here, of course, it's, it's easy. I would rather be alone like Elijah was. Elijah was a prophet that liked to be alone. And I'd rather be alone like Elijah than be surrounded by a bunch of party animals like Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. How much did that cost Lot? Anyway, uh, this later on, this lying prophet is going to receive the word of God to preach, to, to, to share. He's going to prophesy. And so that will take some time to look at. Uh, verse 19. Oh, before we go to 19. The man, when someone says, God said this to me for you. If it's not a confirmation of something God's already been saying, uh, then you probably don't need to listen to them. Now, I'm not talking about a direct thing. I mean, if someone says, thou shalt not steal, that's God. I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, well, I got to hear it from God. Well, you just did. Uh, that's different. But and, and things like, I know I'm thinking about moving or taking this job or something like that. And somebody says, the Lord said to me, well, it better match what God's been saying to me, whether it's a no or a yes, instead of, you know, God says you go, you take it, you're going to find gold there. Anyway, verse 19. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Fatal mistake. First John chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Wind back again to those, that man that says, I'm a Christian, but he's abusing his children. And he wants to just be accepted nonetheless. He's not repenting. He's not changing. He's learned how to be a serpent. He sneaks through, and only those who are looking for serpents can catch him. And, and this naiveness about, well, you know, he's a Christian. You've got to show him. No, he's a snake in a negative sense, which I don't think there is a positive sense for snakes. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I, I, everybody likes beating up on snakes. Which would you rather? No snakes, no mosquitoes. That's a toughie. Anyway, coming back to that, then there's ticks, taxes. All right, let's go back. <laughs> Keep going down the line, right? Um, it's not enough to listen to God. It's not enough. We're talking about this Sunday. No one thing is enough. God has designed it that way. Uh, it's just... Uh, Listening to God, yes, but not to people who contradict what, is, what has been said. And sometimes being led by God comes with the devil's decoys. Not that God is sending the decoys. He's allowing them, of course. But, you know, you're being led by the Lord. And uh, for how many times? Almost every time I deliver a topical, I really feel like this is what God wants me to say. At some point, I'm waiting because here it comes. Maybe this isn't. And it's usually when it's like an hour left or something. Uh, it's the Satan. You know, he just he knows he's not going to sway me the other way, but he likes to harass. That's what he does. Now, verse 20. Now, it happened as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who brought him back. Well, let's pause here for a, for a minute. So here you are. You're having a meal. You're, you're just relaxing. And all of a sudden, you're going to get this message of doom that you're going to die. This does not exonerate the old prophet of Bethel or his behavior of lying, for example. It does bring out to the surface that the man of God had no excuse for this. Uh, this is not the first time that God has used somebody who's disobedient to deliver his message. Balaam. For one, the witch at Endor is another one, and we have it here. God does this to demonstrate he overrules. Whatever is going on, he's still in control. And if he wants to use a stone to praise him, he'll do that. He's sovereign. The point is, what is your relationship to God and his word? Saul would never have been in that situation had he not gone to the witch. This man of God would not be in this situation wondering if this is God or not had he just had listened. Balaam would never have been slain by the Hebrews, the Jewish people, 
had he remained faithful to God. It's, it's nothing about this is perplexing. Uh, it, it is maybe initially, but after you start boiling it down. And none of them introduced new information. They were there to deliver established information, with maybe the exception of, of Balaam. But the witch didn't light any candles in the dark. I mean, spiritually speaking, metaphorically speaking. Verse 21, And he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah, saying, Thus says Yahweh, because you have disobeyed the word of Yahweh and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, verse 32, but came back and ate bread and drank water in the place which Yahweh said to you, Eat no bread, drink no water. Your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. If that were me, there would have been a fist fight right on the spot. <laughs> All right. It would have been a pillow fight. I mean, come on. You, the guy has lied to you. you now it's going to cost you your life. And, and you're having a meal and this prophecy comes out. This is almost cartoonish. But it's real. Just briefly look at me at verse 32 of First Kings 13. For the saying, this is the old prophet speaking after the man of God is dead. For the saying which he cried out by the word of Yahweh against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines on the high places which are in the cities of Samaria will surely come to pass. It looks like he might have been reignited. It looks like this is what it took. This grave mistake, the cost of this righteous man's life. To save his life. We'll come back to that. But he makes this prophecy. Which the man of God could have said. How can I believe you? How do I know you're not lying this time? Let's see. God passed over you. You lied to me about God. Now you're telling me I'm going to die. Well I think he, he did know. I think that when God wants his point made. He gives not only the voice. But the, he, he reaches the ears of the listener too. Um, lying about God is not harmless. And that's what we're seeing. And here in verse 32, his disobedience, uh, the prophet, the man of God, his disobedience put his message in jeopardy because he told the king he's not to stop and eat anywhere. And the king's going to find out, what, he's at the prophet's house? I thought he told me he went, how can I believe his prophecy now? Just because he did the altar thing, that didn't go over well. <clears throat> he was disobedient. Himself and compromise his own witness. The king would have grounds to scoff at God's message. God was not going to have that. The disobedient of the prophet did not cancel the message. That's another interesting point out of the story. Just because he didn't listen to the whole thing God said, the message was delivered and the message stands. And the judgment on him retains the integrity of the message. Well, Proverbs and Peter. Proverbs 11. If the righteous will be recompensed on the earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner? So the Proverbs says, if God's going to deal with the righteous people, if he disciplines righteous people, how much worse is it going to be for the person that's unrighteous? Peter picks that up in his first letter. He quotes that verse. But before he quotes it, he says, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So, verse 23. So it was after he had eaten bread and had drunk that he saddled the donkey for him, the prophet whom he had brought back. Verse 24. When he was gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And the corpse was thrown on the road. And the donkey stood by it. The lion also stood by the corpse. Four times we read about in Scripture <clears throat> lions confronting, being used to confront disobedience. Samson was in the vineyard of Timnah. Well, he was a Nazarite. He wasn't supposed to have anything to do with the vine. What was he doing in the vineyard? What's well, a nice shortcut? He's probably munching on the grapes. The man of Bethel here. Then there's the man of the sons of the prophets in Second and First Kings twenty, which is probably Micaiah. He also says, strike me. And the man says, I'm not striking you. He says, a lion's going to get you for that. And a lion kills him for that because it was a prophetic word. It was an order. And then uh, when Samaria 
is taken by Assyria and then resettled with pagans, lions then become a big problem. That's in Second Kings. We'll come to all of that in Kings. Anyway, his corpse was thrown on the road. It reads as though the lion killed him with a violent toss. Three times the word cast or tossed is used to describe it. So not so much, you know, chewing on him. I'm sure the mouth was involved. I don't think the lion had a gun. But, he, he, you know, he probably threw him up in the air and broke his neck or something. Uh, anyway, uh, there he is. Verse 25. I have to speed this up a little bit. We're almost out of time. And there men passed by and saw the corpse thrown on the road and the lion standing by the corpse. Then they went and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. Well, this kind of reminds us of the judgment for Nadab and Abihu, you know, Sapphire and Ananias. God sometimes is very firm in his judgment. But here is a lion killing a man from Judah. It's ironic because Judah's emblem is the lion. And that comes up in Genesis 49 and again in Revelation 5. But again, the lion did not eat him. And the fact that the lion is standing next to the donkey is, is just weird because this is not a coincidence. He's not a hungry lion. There's no explanation except the prophecy that makes it clear that this is fulfillment of God's word. And if it came true there, it will come true uh, everywhere else. Verse 26, now when the prophet had gone, when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard it, he said, it is the man of God who is disobedient to the word of Yahweh. Therefore, Yahweh has delivered him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word of Yahweh, which he spoke. He conveniently leaves out the part about he, he got him to do this. I want to read three verses, but I don't have time. I'll take one. Paul writing to the church at Colossae, and say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Take heed. Uh, Jesus, Mark chapter 13, 5, take heed. Second Chronicles 29, uh, the king, Hezekiah, speaking to the priests. Uh, he says, my sons, do not be negligent now, for Yahweh has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, and that you should minister to him and burn incense. And he says, do it. And so there are other verses. Time again, we're out of. Moving to verse 27, and he spoke to his son, saying, Saddle a donkey for me. So they saddled it. Verse 28, and then he went and found his corpse thrown on the road, and the donkey and the lion standing by the corpse. The lion had not eaten the corpse, nor torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the corpse of the man of God, laid it on the donkey, brought it back, so the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury him. Uh, the mourning was probably very sincere and heartfelt. There's no reason to doubt that this was a serious lamentation, that he knew he played a role in this. Verse 30, then he laid the corpse in his own tomb, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. Yeah, it's kind of hollow on one point. What makes, what makes it a little bit more meaningful is if this old prophet is revived. About 80 years from now, there's going to be a school of the prophets here in Bethel. Is there a connection? Did he have something to do with that? How did that happen? He's the only link that we know about. Well, he's not the only, but he, he would be the, the first one that we would go to. Uh, this, this promise within this story. The person writing, uh, publishing this for us comes a few hundred years later, incidentally, and we'll come to that in a moment. So it was after he buried him that he spoke to his son, saying, When I am dead, then bury me in the tomb where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. Um, what would the epitaph read? Here lies the victim of his liar. I mean, that would be, that would not be, that would be unkind. But you can't lose sight of it. How can you? You know, man, you caused this whole thing. The guy would be back in Judah with his, whatever he was doing. Probably had an ice cream stand. Uh, verse 32. <laughs> for, for the saying which he cried out by the word of Yahweh against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines on the high places which are in the cities of Samaria, 
will surely come to pass. And so there he is agreeing that these places are evil and they need to be dealt with. And he doesn't dismiss this. And I I think this is good. Well, his mention of Samaria. Samaria did not become a city for another 50 years by name. Uh, But then it was another 200 years before that region would be called Samaria. So the historian, taking the notes from his predecessors, he puts that in there so his readers can say, oh, okay, he's talking about Samaria uh, by its present name. Uh, No corruption there at all. In fact, a very positive um, amendment. Verse 33, after this event, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but again, he made priest from every class of people on the high places. Whoever wished, he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places. Not Jeroboam becoming the priest, but whoever he consecrated became the priest. And that is, of course, a sin. Verse 34, for sin for the Jews. And this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam, so as to exterminate and destroy it from the face of the earth. That is the house of Jeroboam. That begins in the next chapter. And again, we meet the prophet Ahijah. He's old and he's blind by this time, but he can see, still see spiritually. And so we'll get that next week. I think it's very exciting. Well, uh, went a little late. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, again, we always, uh, at least I'm, I'm always hopeful that I do something more with the lessons you give to me. And I would think that would be uh, a shared sentiment from all your people. May you get us all home safely this evening, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.